this past week, John Cleese accepted an award at the Texas Theater, just up on Jefferson Boulevard. He's the British comedian behind Monty Python and Faulty Towers. But my favorite thing about him, the quotation I call upon again and again in my own life, is as his character Brian Stimson in the movie Clockwise from 1986, where he says, it's not the despair, Laura, I can take the despair. It's the hope I can't stand. <laughs> it's not the despair that will get you down, not the depression and the darkness that will sock you in the gut. We're so used to the darkness. We're accustomed to evil. We're habituated into sin. It's when hope breaks through and when joy bubbles up and when peace descends that we are undone, broken apart, rent asunder. Last week, I was teaching the little ones during the sermon at the 1015, but I hear that Father Jordan preached on death and judgment. Aren't we glad he's headed to the diocese full time? <laughs> so this week, I'm going to preach on hope, which actually might be more brutal than death and judgment if we take John Cleese seriously. Both of us, Father Jordan and me, are taking cues from the history of our church and tradition. Last week, he tackled two of the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Standing in the ancient tradition of millennia, sermons and spiritual devotions often focus on the end of life, this end of times matter during the season of Advent, this season of waiting, waiting for God to come in flesh, waiting for God to come again, waiting for God to make all things right. A more modern take on the four weeks of Advent is to focus on hope, peace, joy, love. Sometimes these have been interpreted as a capitulation to a squeamish and soft church that have lost their sense of urgency, of hard truth, and austere devotion to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This pastel-tinged and sweet, fuzzy understanding of these virtues avoids the depth of these concepts, the real, fleshy, terrifying incarnation of God's character in a man, Jesus, fully God, fully revealed of hope, peace, joy, love, fully man. Advent then is a call, a moment that calls us to stare back in the face at the miracle and seeming impossibility of a life so transformed by these virtues that an identity is changed, that his name is new, that her, she is made a new creation. This happens through the slow, painful work of obedience and submission, or put another way, the work of constant and continual openness to change. Change in one's convictions, change in one's lifestyle, change in one's relationships and one's habits, until the old is so far away 
through all these incremental changes as to be a different person altogether. Isaiah picks up on this theme in the Old Testament lesson this morning. He's speaking a message to a people who are in a precarious political situation under an unjust king, divided against their brothers in the northern kingdom of Israel. These two parts of God's people, the northern and the southern kingdom, have taken opposite sides in a dispute between Syria and Aram. Isaiah grieves for the people who are torn apart, who are being led into disaster. More than just lamenting, though, Isaiah trusts in hope that God will make all things right, will bring a good leader back to Israel, back to his people, and will somehow bring the divided family of God back together again. The poem that Isaiah delivers from the whisper of God in his ear and his heart isn't just about Jesus, which is the way that we read it mostly today, but is more immediately about Isaiah's hope for their next king, Hezekiah. History tells us that Isaiah's hope was not particularly well-placed and that the second part of the poem that we read today, the second set of verses, already hints that Isaiah himself might have started to realize that Hezekiah was not quite what they were hoping for. As he talks about age-old enemies, the snake and the baby, the wolf and the sheep, the calf and the lion, resting and playing, not just side by side, but together with one another. Isaiah describes an ultimate reunion, not just bringing together pieces of God's people who have been divided politically into the northern and southern kingdoms at this point in Israel's history, but bringing together created beings that have been enemies since the fall, since almost the very beginning of creation. It's really a stunning image of hope. And yet, what do we see when we look around us? What if we were to put a little calf into the lion enclosure in the Dallas Zoo? I don't expect that we would see them snuggling up with one another against the cold or grooming one another unless it was the lion preparing his meal. So what our eyes tell us when we look at the world, when we gaze around creation, when we experience death, or when illness or infertility or poverty or anger or betrayal overcome us and come into our lives, we learn that despair is safest. Darkness is more certain. At least we can count on evil. At least we know what to expect when we depend on sin. I think that might be what John Cleese's character is getting at. Hope is heartbreaking. Because of when we see it fail in front of our eyes. And we see it fail so, so often. Or at least this pessimist does. I see beloved friends with cancer. I struggle with echoes of brokenness from my parents' own divorce when I was an infant. 
I watch poverty and addiction eat up the precious children of God. It's not the despair. It's the hope I can't stand. How can we expect or hope for anything different? How can we pretend that death doesn't prowl and pounce and prey upon us? How can we imagine that we live in a world where we're not locked in to darkness? It's not the despair. It's the hope I can't stand. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep deep darkness, on them has light shone. Isaiah said that, too. In saying so, even as he's realizing that the next guy in line for the throne probably won't be the great redeemer that those people need, Isaiah is reaching forward, realizing as he says it that God's story and God's timeline is bigger and longer and more complex and more full than any one group of people or any one piece of time. Just as the glimmers of light blind us after we've become accustomed to the dark, stinging our eyes and burning our senses, as a people who are surrounded by darkness, by sin, by death, hope indeed is hard to stand. It is hard to believe and it is hard to surrender to. But Isaiah tells his people and tells us today, a shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse. That is, out of the heritage of the great King David, who wasn't perfect either. And this shoot, who we read to be Jesus and who Isaiah hopes might be Hezekiah, and if not him, someone else who's so full of God's presence that that this person might have the spirit of God resting on him. This hoped for rescuer will do what we too are called to do by Isaiah and by God himself. As you look at verse 3, he shall judge not by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. We see the lion attacking the calf. We see addiction overcoming the will of our loved ones. We see cancer or illness or age wasting away the bodies of our friends. We see death prowl. But what our eyes see and what our ears hear is not the ultimate truth, is not the most trustworthy revelation is not the reality of the kingdom of God. And there's a hint of it right here, brothers and sisters. And it's why we come to church each Sunday to be reminded that what we see out there is not the final word, is not where our hope rests, is not the reality we're called to place our faith and our hope in. Look around you right now. 
The world tells us that people of different skin colors don't belong together on Sunday mornings. And that's not God's reality. The kingdom of God is made of all nations. And that's what happens here at the foot of the cross every Sunday morning. The world tells us that our worth is based on what we produce, the money we make or the art we create, the investments that we make in others or the care we take for our own selves. The kingdom of God tells us that our age, social standing, marital status, level of employment, home address, blood pressure reading, none of these things has any claim on your worth or your hope. The worth of a person in the kingdom of God is based on what God thinks of a person. And my brothers and sisters hear the good news of hope. God gave his life for you. God thinks you are worth the price of his own life, his own breath. God's love for you is so great, based on nothing but your existence, your creation, your breathing, that he would indeed, he did, die for you. That is what we see here. That is the truth. It is our hope. And God is making those promises of his truth in our midst. Bringing those promises into flesh before our very eyes. And even this very morning, thanks be to God.